Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, uh, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in- instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. I'm Matt Schechner, and our guest today is Joanna Coles. Joanna has had a remarkable career. She grew up in a small town in northern England and Yorkshire and has really done so many different things, Uh, hardcore journalism, investigative journalism. She's built brands. She's built businesses. And as you'll hear, she's always been a creator of things. She's a great mind. She's worked for some of the great minds in the business, legends like Kathy Black, And we really enjoyed our conversation with her. I think you will, too. Joanna, welcome to Great Minds. It's wonderful to have you. And I want to start in an unusual place. And we're not going to talk about Cosmo. We're not going to talk about the Matrix Award. And we're not going to talk about those things right away. We'll get to them all. And I want to start at The Spectator. But even before that, I want to go back to you and your first article that was published. I believe it was in the children's section of the Yorkshire Post. What gave you that idea at the age of 10? I loved getting the newspaper. I loved the missive from the outside hitting our house every day. We had the evening post and then on Saturday, uh, it was a bigger edition of the paper. Good morning. Good morning. Training for Sunday, are you? Uh, big match Saturday. <laughs> well, take it easy, mate. Uh, what are they on about? Give us one of their Yorkshire Posts. Yorkshire Post? I thought you'd have wanted a sporting paper. And, uh, Yorkshire Post has it all. Rugby, athletics, you name it. Tells me the truth about the London teams and all. Yeah, well, tell us what it says about West Ham, then. What's there to say about West Ham? 1-0 to Leeds. And I just found this thing enthralling. It was full of stories about the community I was living in. And I was dying to write for it. And then I think something exciting happened to us on holiday. So I wrote a piece. I sent it in. And unbelievably, not only did they publish it, but they paid me two pounds, which at the time actually felt like the riches of Croesus. And so I contributed reasonably regularly to the Junior Evening Post, as it was called, uh, while I was growing up. And I absolutely loved it. Fantastic. And, and did that curiosity, I know your mom worked as a medical social worker and your dad was a teacher. Did some of that curiosity come from your parents? I think it came from my own curiosity, actually. My my parents brought back lots of information and we would always talk about their day and what was going on. But I had a very strong sense growing up in Leeds in the 60s and 70s that there was a bigger world out there that I was really desperate to be part of. And I think when you grow up in Britain, 
London really is almost like a city state. Everything takes place there. It's not like America where you have, you know, Silicon Valley and then you have Hollywood in LA and you have politics in DC and you have the media and the finance business in New York, in London. Or if you're growing up in Britain, pretty much everything is concentrated in London. And if you grow up outside of London, it's hard not to feel that you are growing up outside of where the power is and where the action is, or at least that's how I felt as a child. And I remember going to Leeds station, the train station, the rail station, and there was a new train that they just created called the 125. And this was going to transform transport from Leeds to London. Instead of four hours, it was going to be two hours. And I remember going on the train. The train was going nowhere. It was a stationary train that we were allowed to tour. And I remember going on it and thinking, I cannot wait to get on this thing when it's moving and just go to London. Uh, so I had tremendous curiosity about that. And then with my neighbor, uh, who was my age, we created a magazine which we would drop round our neighbors. None of them asked for it. It was the first iteration of junk mail, I think. Uh, and it was full of our sort of observations and rather bad poems and drawings. Uh, but we sent a copy to the Queen of England and her maid in waiting uh, actually replied to us two months after we sent it. We got this unbelievable letter back with a royal seal. I still have the envelope and the letter. And it said how much Her Majesty had enjoyed reading our issues, uh, our issue and was looking forward to more issues. And that was really all the encouragement I needed to go into journalism. Fantastic. Well, that, that's what a wonderful story. And so then you went on to university and studied literature. And first job, was that The Spectator? Yes, it was as a graduate trainee. And I did everything from sell advertising and work in the circulation department to work on the books pages. And it was such a fun opportunity. It was at the height of Thatcherism. So I joined in 1984. And um Mrs. Thatcher was absolutely at her height. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies, not for turning. <laughs> the Spectator had just been uh, taken over by a very young editor at the time. He was 28, Charles Moore, who would go on to write the definitive biography of of Margaret Thatcher. But at the time, he was known as this, the leader of a group they called the Young Fogies. At the time, everything was being sort of labelled uh, in sort of marketing speak, actually. When you look back on it, there was a group called the Sloan Rangers that had been identified by a brilliant uh, marketing mind called Peter York, who was super uh, smart about identifying tribes. And it was really at the beginning of people thinking about uh, markets and tribes and Charles Moore led the young fogies and the young fogies were this bunch of uh, quite right wing libertarian men all of whom adored Margaret Thatcher and so the spectator was really at the nexus of that and it was an enormously lively place to work we had Prince Charles came for lunch lots of politicians came for lunch they had a famous Thursday lunch where they would sit and get quite drunk and argue about political events. And I was not grand enough to be invited to the lunches, but I would see the writers and the politicians staggering red faced down the stairs afterwards. And it was this beautiful Georgian uh, office 
an old Georgian house, which was, frankly, every time you sat down, you thought there might be an industrial sized splinter coming for your for your hand. It was very rickety and old fashioned, but very romantic. And uh, I absolutely loved it. And it was sort of the fulfillment of your childhood dream, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. I mean, you know, you had Kingsley Amis, the author, wandering in and out. Graham Greene had been the book's editor. Oberon Waugh, who at the time was a very popular columnist, was constantly coming in and out. Jeffrey Bernard, who um, had a play written about him. Every now and then, Jeff, Jeff Bernard was a famously heavy drinker. And some weeks he just couldn't get his column in. And so all that would appear would be a little italic line saying Jeffrey Bernard is unwell, which really meant he's far too hungover to remotely put his column together this week. Uh, and it later became the title of a play about him and his his musings on the world. His column was called Low Life. There was a column called High Life by Taki Theodorakopoulos, who uh, actually shortly after I joined was uh, caught sauntering through Heathrow with a packet of cocaine in his back jeans pocket, uh, which landed him in Pentonville jail. Uh, that was pretty soon after I joined, so my mother called up very anxious to know what was going on. Uh, but it was in no, a place of great, uh, lots of ideas, lots of young people who didn't know what they couldn't do. Boris Johnson eventually became editor. Uh, so it really had a group of very talented, smart young people who got to run this very well-known magazine in England. So I want to go back to your initial gigs as a reporter for the uh, Daily Telegraph, and then for The Guardian. But as your career has evolved, you've become such a fierce advocate for women's empowerment, for women in media and in the business world in general, and in particular, uh, promoting young entrepreneurs. When you were a young lady starting out at The Spectator in your first gigs, did you have any situations that you reflect on where you were not treated fairly because you were women or where someone tried to take advantage of a situation? Well, I remember my first interview with Max Hastings at the Daily Telegraph. I went in to see him uh, and I was dying to get the job to be a reporter there. And he looked at me across his desk and he said, well, you're a woman and you're under 30 and I need both of those categories. So you're hired for three months. And at the end of three months, if it's worked out, we'll give you a job. And if it doesn't work out, no hard feelings. Uh, happily, it did work out. But the interview itself must have lasted less than two minutes. But I hit two two categories that he was looking for. And I mean, when I look back on it, I mean, it's amazing to think how sexist Fleet Street was. It was so sexist that at the bar that everybody went to after they'd finished working, a famous Fleet Street bar called Elvino's, women weren't actually allowed to order drinks. We weren't allowed to order them and you you couldn't possibly pay for them because you weren't allowed to order them. So as a result, my female friends and I, the female reporters and I would, would go in and our male colleagues would order us drinks and then pay for them. And of course, we didn't understand at the time that that was deep sexism. We were like, this is great. We don't have to pay for our drinks. Um, but looking back on it, there were just different assumptions for women than there were for men. And uh, I had always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. It never dawned on me I might actually get to be one myself. I had always thought I will probably marry a foreign correspondent because that's the nearest I'll get. 
Um, and then eventually when I joined The Guardian and then became their New York correspondent, I was able to fulfill one of my ambitions. But I think just culturally and societally, we had lower expectations for what women would do. And my generation was lucky in terms of us being able to upturn some of those expectations, show we could do things. And there was a gradual movement, I think spearheaded actually by Margaret Thatcher and having a top woman in the job, or having a woman rather in the top job, that people began to realize we have to open the doors. And as Warren Buffett always says, you know, why would you restrict um, your workforce to only 50% of the smart people out there? No, absolutely. So you moved on there and you got the chance to climb the ladder and work as a reporter. I was uh, fast-tracked, as they called it at the time, to the night news desk, which was its own special hell, because you rolled in at six o'clock in the evening and you worked until three in the morning. And this really was a tortuous process process if you were a young woman as I was in my early 20s because what you wanted to do is go out with all your friends in the evening not be trapped uh, in a rapidly emptying newsroom and you would have the skeleton staff but what you did get was amazing expertise uh, in breaking stories when things happened in the evening so to give you an example the Lockerbie air crash December 21st 1988 happened uh, at about 8:15 at night in a few short violent moments 270 people died uh, I was that evening the night news editor I think there were two other people in the newsroom the aircraft luggage and bodies were scattered over a wide area. We saw the story, what had happened, and then you're immediately fielding correspondence. You're calling the Scottish correspondent, you're sending people up there, and it gives you unbelievable experience. And then weirdly, uh, shortly after, there was another air crash at Kegworth. Before our next programme, we're going over to the newsroom for a newsflash from Michael Burke. An airliner with 118 passengers on board has crashed on the M1 motorway in Leicestershire. It came down near... There were, so it gave you an enormous amount of experience that traditionally you would have had to have waited. Uh, and I did that for nine months, which really uh, accelerated my, my career there. One of the common threads that you can trace in your career is you've you know, work for some incredible organizations and institutions, but you've also always been a creator of things. And I guess one of the very first was a creation on BBC Radio 4, Medium Wave, and then the TV version of that, Late Media, on BBC 2. What do you remember from that era? Well, that was so much fun. And actually, I remember we had a very good all-female team that produced Medium Wave, which really was ahead of its time in terms of being a show about the business of media. All day. Turn over. Sounds running. Turning over. 198, take five. Action! A grey October day in Kent, and Yorkshire Television are filming a Christmas special of the Darling Buds of May. With audiences of 18 million, it's a television ratings phenomenon. Get away from that car! A second series is already in the can, a sign that Britain's indigenous television industry is flourishing. And it appeared on Radio 4 on 
uh, on the BBC after uh, what's known as The Archers, which is a very long-running radio soap opera that British people are obsessed by. I can't tell you how The Archers is. There's no American equivalent. It's like this long-running, I mean, it's run for something like 40 years. Caravans and farm holidays? <laughs> yeah. You don't want a farm holiday, do you? Oh, no. I want a caravan by the sea. I'm going to do the cooking. Oh, well, that's all right, then. Uh, extraordinary story of a group of people that live in a made-up village called Ambridge. And we used to come after the archers, so we got a very good lead-in time. And we were able to interview all sorts of people, talk to government ministers about the media, talk to big celebs in the media that week. Uh, so it was a very interesting show to be able to do. We had a super talented team. And we then took it and did a version of it for television, which was also great fun. I think the nearest equivalent is the On the Media, the NPR do, which uh, is a slightly longer, less business-focused show than ours was. But then again, the media has really changed. And I would love to go back and do it again with social media thrown in the mix because there's so much to discuss there, especially at the moment. Yeah, in many ways, you were way ahead of your time doing that. Well, we were ahead of our time. I mean, I co-created it with a producer called Anne Revel, um, who was terrific. And it was, it was one of the first shows to really understand that the media had a massive impact on everything it covered. And at the time, media literacy was something that was really beginning to mushroom in quite left-wing type colleges. And it wasn't something that people understood as a real subject. Now, of course, as you think about regulation or the lack of regulation on the big social media platforms, you realize how most people do not have a good understanding of what social media is or actually what the media is, how the media spin things. People talk about the media as if it were one thing instead of a series of companies, all of whom are answerable to shareholders. And the media is talked about in completely different ways to, say, the auto industry or uh, different utilities. And I do think that one of the best things we can equip young people with these days is an understanding of how both social media and more traditional media actually function. In 97, you get tabbed to become the Guardian's New York bureau chief, a very big gig for someone who is still pretty much at the beginning of their career. What was that like when they called you in and offered you that opportunity? Well, they didn't call me in and offer the opportunity. I got wind that the person who was doing the job was going to come back to London. And I rushed into the editor's office and basically said, I will not leave this office until you promise me the job. So that was one of the <laughs> that was one of those occasions where I was very clear that I was dying to do the job. I was dying to live in New York. And uh, partly because the stakes were so much bigger. But when you're living in London, it feel it felt New York felt like this glamorous finger beckoning to the future. And uh, Every now and then I've had moments where I was absolutely determined for a job and that was one of them. And my skills were really suited to it. You know, I love uh, reporting on things that New York uh, is a centre for. So media, arts, uh, publishing, some finance. And uh, I was thrilled to come. Uh, my husband and I came on the QE2. We spent six days at sea preparing for it. And I still remember getting up at five in the morning, coming past the Statue of Liberty, 
under the Verrazano Bridge. It felt very romantic. And uh, I loved every minute of it. It was a fantastic job. It was, the, you know, the best excuse to travel around America. All you had to do is find a story. You had to find somewhere that interested you. Off you would go. And it was a fantastic period in my life, actually. Were there any particular stories that you covered during your tenure there that come to mind that you were really proud of or you know, that were memorable for you? Well, I remember many different stories, and it was all about my own um, understanding, growing understanding of America, which is such a complicated country in many ways. I remember going to cover the execution of only the second woman to have been executed in Texas for, I think, 100 years. Her name was Carla Faye Tucker. GW called back the next day and he said, well, you're not going to like my decision. And he said, uh, I'm gonna, it's going to happen. I said, well, I hope you're getting some sleep. He said, oh, I sleep. I sleep. I, I never have a problem sleeping. And that's true with him. He makes his decision, bam, and then he's gone. He, he, there's no regrets with G.W. Bush. I have sought guidance through prayer. I have concluded judgments about the heart and soul of an individual on death row are best left to a higher authority. Carla Faye Tucker has acknowledged she is guilty of a horrible crime. The courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have reviewed the legal issues in this case, and therefore I will not grant a 30-day stay. May God bless Carla Faye Tucker and God bless her victims and their families. She'd been under the influence of a boyfriend and they'd both been taking enormous amounts of drugs when they murdered a policeman. And she had had a complete uh, 180 in, in jail, had turned to God, had become an exemplary citizen in jail, helping other people. I think she'd even married... Um, or gone out with one of the prison chaplains. Anyway, it was just an extraordinary gathering of people outside the jail. And the strangest thing was these people who'd come and who were just very pro-execution and who were chanting, um, Carla Fay, Carla Fay, have a good day, Carla Fay. You know, weird trolls. This was before really the internet had taken off. It was just at the beginning, but it was way before um, Twitter, for example. So these were all people that would turn up at a live execution. I mean, they could, they didn't have access to the execution. She was executed in the jail, but they turned up outside. Um, and really, they were an iteration of the of the group of people you now think of as as um, as internet trolls. I covered the Oprah versus the Cattleman uh, or the Cattlemen case in Texas, which was fascinating. Um, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. So there were many things going on that felt extraordinary at the time. And it was much easier also to cover things then because you weren't competing with the avalanche that is social media now. As you traveled across America, what were the places and spaces that really stood out to you that surprised you, places that you uh, were were more than you expected in places that might have been a little less than you expected? Well, I think that the thing that you realize is that the minute you start talking to people, for the most part, they A, want to help you and B, 
America may be divided in the minds of the media, but when you actually sit down and talk with people, they are not hostile to you in the way that you would think if you spend any time on social media. People are actually quite friendly. They want to hear your point of view. They want to put their own point of view, but they are much more civilized than the media would lead us to believe. And you have to remember that our world is presented us to us through the lens of a media which thrives on conflict. So all we ever see on the media or through the media are images of conflict. But when you actually drive across America through many states that we don't see represented on the media barely at all, you come across people who may have very different views to you, but aren't going to deny you access to a glass of water if you stop by their remote house and you're you've you know you're desperate for a drink or aren't going to not give you some gas if you need some for your tank if you're about to run out what i discovered was an incredible generosity of spirit um a tremendous desire to live uh peacefully um and a surprising interest in outsiders given america's reputation for being more insular than certainly europeans you know, there's the the statistic that people use that I think it's only, what is it, 20% of Americans have a passport. Um, but that's partly because America is just so big and so vast. You don't need to rush off as you do in Europe uh, to have a change. And I, I understand I'm presenting this through a very European perspective. But when I got here, um, you, you know, the, the snobbery against Americans in Europe is so great. Europeans think they're more sophisticated. They travel more. Well, of course they travel more because their countries are smaller. And if you want to get a change of pace, you have to travel abroad um, because the countries for the largest part are pretty homogenous, whereas that's less true in America. You know, if you're living in New York, you can go to New Orleans and have a completely different uh, scene, or you can go to Chicago, or you can go to Nashville, or Santa Fe, or Portland. These are worlds into themselves. And um, I just love the scale of America. I love the generosity and the interest and the curiosity of the people. And I love the unexpected, you know, the eccentricity of America, the, the guy on Route 66 who buried all those cars. So the car fins are sticking up. Yes, it's a tourist attraction, but what a genius tourist attraction. Um, and I just love the variety that wherever you went, you always came across different landscapes, different people, different opinions. And, you, you know, often they would explain why they wanted a gun living here and you would see it through their eyes. And I found it really refreshing to have my own expectations challenged all the time. I think, you know, your point about travel, you know, in, in Europe, you can go from country to country that in America is like going from New York to Pennsylvania or Ohio. Yeah, absolutely. And people can't yeah. believe here that you drive four hours to go and see someone, which you might do, because in Europe, you wouldn't do that. There's a different perspective about distance and about borders. Yeah, about two years ago, my son who's 25 now, decided he wanted to move to Los Angeles. And we drove across the country together. And, you know, I would do it again tomorrow. Yeah. You know, to see things that we've never seen, to drive across, you know, the beauty in Oklahoma, um, you know, New Mexico, the places that we drove through, the people that we met along our way uh, with our New York license plates, it could not have been friendlier to us. So I share your perspective on that. So... 
let's uh, talk about your evolution from reporter to editor. Did that come about because it was you demanded it uh, as you did the job to get yourself to the Guardian? Is it just sort of a natural evolution? How did we go from one to the other? No, what what happened? Uh, my evolution to editor came because I had children. And I could no longer hit the road at the drop of a news story. I really needed to have much more control over my schedule. So I left newspapers and joined New York Magazine when I was pregnant with my second son. With my first son, I had just about been able to manage it. Uh, My husband traveled too a lot at the time. And I remember uh, on my son's, I think it was his first birthday, no, it must have been his second birthday. Um, there was a terrible story up in Hanover, New Hampshire, at Dartmouth College of a double murder of two much-loved professors, German professors, who had been stabbed to death egregiously by, it turned out, eventually two two strangers, um, in a story that I am still haunted by, actually. Anyway, I got a call from the news desk to go up. I said, look, I can't go today. It's my son's birthday party. Um, I'll go tomorrow. And they said, fine. And then they called back and said, no, the editor wants you to go today. You've got to go. We really want this story. So uh, my husband had just come back from South Africa. We passed each other in the lobby. I said, you know, the cake's coming. Here's who's invited. It's up to you. I'll call you when I get to New Hampshire. Got up to New Hampshire, found the scene of the crime, interviewed the neighbors, talked to the police, stayed up till five in the morning filing the story. Then went to bed for a couple of hours, then woke up to check the news desk had got it. And the news desk said, yes, we've got the story, but we're going to hold it until Thursday. And it it was a particularly unpleasant story to report because it really was nothing other than a random crime. And these people who were beloved by the University of Dartmouth had uh, just been unlucky and in their house at the wrong time, the wrong place, and answered the door to two young men who claimed they wanted them to do a survey but in fact were looking for $10,000 and stabbed them to death in their lobby, in the lobby of their home. And the paper wasn't even going to run it. And I had missed my son's second birthday to do this. And I suddenly realized I'd come to the end of this job, that it was a great job. It wasn't the job's fault. The job required you being able to do that. And it was the paper's prerogative to delay the story, but that no longer worked for my life. And so with much trepidation, I took an editor's job at New York Magazine, which was a great place to be. I started the week before 9-11. So we then immediately got plunged into 9-11. So it was interesting being at that magazine right uh, at at that moment and very interesting way to really then further my knowledge about New York, about the city, about how it was run, about the characters that New York throws up. Um, And initially, I really didn't like it. I wanted to be out on the road again. I hated being behind a desk. I don't like routine. I didn't like having to be in my chair at a certain time every week. But as I got more experience, and as I uh, eventually left New York Magazine, went briefly to a magazine called More, and then went to become the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire. I realized I loved the management part of it. I liked sending writers out. I was a good editor because I'd come from, I could see it from the ed- the writer's point of view. And uh, I liked having lots of ideas that I couldn't possibly write myself, but I could send other people out to write. And I enjoyed the process of putting a magazine together and creating an intoxicating mix that readers loved. So it was by happenstance, in a way, that I ended up 
editing, but I'm very glad I did because it then gave me the opportunity to go into management, run teams of people, which I loved. And uh, I create what I hope were really good magazines. And it sounds like your background and all the work you had done in the field, so to speak, as a reporter really fueled you to become not just a good editor, but a great editor. Well, you know, I like, I like that. I mean, you never think of yourself as being great at anything, I think. But what I was able to do was understand it from the ground up. And there's no substitute for that. So I was able to meticulously take a piece apart and rebuild it uh, because I understood the building blocks. And I've watched editors who haven't had that background. It's much harder for them and they don't produce uh, nearly as good quality journalism because they don't understand the process. They don't understand the recipe. It's like coming in to run a kitchen if you've never been a chef. If you've never been a chef, it's extremely hard to understand the alchemy of standing over a hot stove, mixing something in a pan and knowing the exact moment you turn the heat off. Uh, and that's what it's like being an editor. You need to have been on the road. You need to understand how hard it is to file on deadline. You need to understand how hard it is to write well when you're tired and you're worried about the logistics of, you know, are you going to find a motel that night? Is someone else going to get the story before you? What if they've got a better version of the story? It's so competitive when you do it well, because there's often someone else after the same story. And uh, I loved it. It was such fun having a team of in my case, often young female writers who were learning on the job. And the chance to do it together was really fun. You were relatively early to the women's empowerment movement, which has picked up, thankfully, so much steam the last several years. But going back almost 10 years, Marie Claire at Work and you're the Women on Top Awards, those were among the firsts of that scale what what was the thinking behind that? Was that something that you had in mind and were just waiting for the right time? Take well, us back to that. I had come out of a background of serious news journalism and features and thinking about the media with Medium Wave on, on the BBC. And so when I looked at women's magazines, when I came in to work uh, for them full time, they all felt very similar to me and they felt that they lacked topicality. You could pick one up at the time. And I started at Marie Claire as the editor-in-chief in 2006. And you could pick up a magazine and it would have been very well put together. They were always well um, well put together. The mix was always interesting. But they felt evergreen and as if they weren't tied to... Uh, anything going on in the culture. And what I was very aware of was that with the arrival of Twitter, which I think started the same year that I pitched up at Marie Claire, the world was speeding up, that people felt much more connected to what was going on now, and that magazines in particular that didn't feel more connected would lose out. And the industry is in such decline, and, and that's because they don't feel... Uh, as current as they should do. And so by the time you pick it up, you have a sense that this is already three months out of date, even with a weekly magazine. You see how something like People, which has done its best, but can't possibly keep up with Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat. Uh, it's just unable for it to do. So I was very conscious I wanted to make it more topical. I was conscious there was a new 
feminist awakening going on in the culture, which really um, hit a moment when Sheryl Sandberg published Lean In, which uh, I had just pitched up at Cosmopolitan at that point, which was the biggest female media brand in the world. And Cheryl had given me an early copy of Lean In, an early galley, which I'd made some suggestions to. But I realized as I read the book um, in the Palo Alto shopping mall, actually, where I'd gone to buy a red sweater and stopped to have a cappuccino and fished out this thing she'd sort of coyly pushed across the table at me when I'd gone to see her earlier in the day at Facebook. And I started reading it and I looked up and two, two hours had gone by and I thought she's written the book of female ambition. Nobody's written this book before. And she put together all the data which showed how women were losing out in leadership, that they were studying at the same rate as men uh, as undergraduates of college, yet they absolutely, from the first managerial position onwards, got locked out of leadership positions. Um, I knew that there was going to be a big, there would be a big moment around then. So we doubled down on it. Advertisers were thrilled. Marketers were thrilled. We were getting a lot of resonance from readers who were excited by it. And I think we led a movement, actually, in women's magazines and women's media to take women's careers and women's job and win women's money much more seriously than they, they had been doing. Well, not only did you pivot the magazine into the new world, and I can see now how some of this goes back to your early career and when we were talking about Margaret Thatcher, but you also did not resist the evolution of digital. And so many in your old business, the magazine business, I think did resist it to their detriment. Well, it was very clear from my own behavior and also because I was a news junkie that I was, you know, this was incredibly exciting. What was happening was A, unstoppable, but B, it was unbelievably exciting to have information, you know, in front of you as it was happening. I mean, anybody with a reporter's background not wanting to immediately dive into Twitter, uh, that, that would be total career suicide because suddenly you had this extraordinary army of of the equivalent of news reporters across the globe filing at all times and it, even better it was short it was only 140 characters so uh it was the sort of you, you know this incredible army of citizen journalists suddenly pouring their information into a public space and it was completely gripping yeah, we we uh, had a conversation with uh, David Freeman at CAA, and we were talking about the rise of Amazon and Netflix and Google and Apple and uh, and the whole the you know the evolution of streaming and where that is right now. And I asked him, are they the equivalent of the old studios back in you know the halcyon days of Hollywood? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Same can be said in journalism now when you look at where we get our news, it's changed completely. Yep. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And and it's exciting. I mean, the customer is both, um, certainly in terms of having access to quality television programming, so much better off than they were 5, 10, 15 years ago because there's just so much more content out there and a lot of it is really good. Uh, in news, arguably, it's more complicated because there's so much disinformation out there. Let's talk about where we are today in the media, where you no longer necessarily get the news, but you get someone's version of the news. 
what's your take on what's happening now and how we have become so divided here in America? One of the statements that you made in the tail end of the campaign uh, in, in the midterms. That here, this, here we go. That, well, if you don't mind, Mr. President, that this caravan was an invasion. As you know, yeah, I, Mr. President, I consider it to be an invasion. As you know, Mr. President, the caravan was not an invasion. It's a, it's a, a group of migrants moving up from Central America towards the border with the U.S. Thank you for telling and me that. Why, why, did you, why did you characterize it as such? Uh, because I consider it an invasion. You and I have a difference of opinion. But do you think that you demonized immigrants? Well, I think the big division is between people who have who can afford access to real information and those who can't uh, afford it. So you have people who can afford subscriptions to a variety of news sources to give them um, a plurality of information. And then you have people who pick up what's free and what's free for the most part, a lot of it is misinformation um, put out by what we're now discovering to be, you know, Russian organizations trying to disrupt America, and they're largely using Facebook to do it. So we face very perplexing times. And you've seen over the corona crisis in particular, a terrible division between people who believe in science and have been trying to get uh, people to shelter in place or lock down, uh, understanding the severity of the virus, and those on Fox News and on other places online that have been saying this is, <clears throat> excuse me, a huge exaggeration, don't take any notice of it, it's a democratic, you know, promoting Trump's early idea that this was a democratic hoax. So I think it's deeply worrying. You see uh, with things like the vaccination debate that social media gives people a megaphone who don't necessarily deserve it. And that their voice, which may be actually a very small voice within the larger culture, gets amplified beyond all reason. And I think it's a real problem for our culture. I don't think our politicians are up to speed on how to deal with it. We clearly need regulation. It's very complicated. The big companies like Google and Facebook are resisting it. But it's clear that as a culture, we are definitely harmed by a lot of the misinformation out there. And there will be people who will die of corona unnecessarily because of some of the bad information put out there by, by Fox and that's been on Facebook. So how do we find our way back? We uh, were talking to some we have family in Arizona, and my brother-in-law said, just be careful, you know, some of our friends are on the other side. And I have no problem with people on the other side. I think one of the great things about this country is that we're all allowed to believe what we want to believe and we believe different things. Um, and we couldn't help myself and started a conversation with this guy, Danny, who was from the Bronx originally. And he starts railing about Hunter Biden and Burisma. And I said, right, but Hunter Biden, you know, he doesn't really, you know, comparing it to you know, the president. And I said, but the president is the president. You're talking here about, you know, somebody's son, probably not the first son or daughter to leverage their mom or dad's name to get a consulting gig. You know, who cares if this guy's got a $50,000 a month retainer or whatever it was? It doesn't affect anything. 
And he could not get off that point. And I'm sure we're going to see, you know, all kinds of stuff come out about, you know, Hunter Biden over the summer now. I read this morning that Ron Johnson, I think he's a congressman or a senator, working on a report on Hunter Biden. And that will take the news and the headlines. How do we find our way back from that kind of craziness? Well, I don't know if we find our way back to anywhere, but what I do think we need to do is have an understanding of priority. And right now, that's very difficult. I think we need to create a really impactful select committee who look at the regulation around the larger social media platforms, because clearly what we're doing at the moment isn't working. And it's, you know, when you look at the scale of Facebook or you look at the scale and the speed of Twitter, you realize that these are things that nobody expected them to have the impact that they have had. And we now need to figure out a way to live with them in our midst. I do think it's incredibly important that we teach kids how to use them effectively, because these are wonderful, wonderful resources when used correctly. But they can be, like many American inventions, uh, they can have a dark side. And the dark side that they have here is really immense. It's unclear how we do it, which is why I think we need a bunch of people to sit down and figure it out. But we've been able to figure out other things. Cars give off terrible emissions which pollute the physical environment. Twitter and Facebook undoubtedly pollute our intellectual environment. We've figured out ways to regulate uh, the gas industry. We need to figure out ways of doing it. This is not beyond the wit of man. We have to agree that there's a problem. We have to sit down and we have to figure it out. I don't know the solution, but I'm sure that you can bring together a smart group of people who can begin to incrementally figure out a solution. If they can take down posts when they know that there is disinformation around COVID, they can figure it out around politics and science. I think the most frightening legacy of Trump's government to date is this discrediting science and experts because we need science and experts. Might be easy to forget right about now, but one of President Trump's many attempts to undercut the free press included largely ending the 50-year bipartisan tradition of White House press briefings. That's a time when the White House faces journalistic inquiries to inform the nation. For over half of last year, the Trump White House didn't hold a single briefing. Obviously, a contrast to these now daily briefings in this coronavirus era, which also features something of a new tradition that we want to speak about right now. Medical experts who provide key facts while the president does not. It's almost as if the coronavirus has come along to show us how much we need science and experts. It doesn't mean that they're always right, but you need to start from a base let, let's talk about one other uh, part of the media uh, that really plays to your body of work in, in entirety, going back to your initial work as a journalist and investigative journalist. Do you worry today, looking at magazines less so, but newspapers in particular, um, that those institutions like the New York Times as businesses are continuing to get weaker 
and compromising their ability to do proper long-form investigative journalism. As a society, I think it's so important that people are held to account on the right and the left. Do you worry about that at all? I worry about the decimation of local journalism, the fact that um, city halls can now go uh, unchecked, um, local politicians could go unchecked. Uh, the closing of over 2,000 local newspapers in the last year or so is devastating to local communities. So I do worry about that. Uh, on the flip side, information does have a habit of sometimes getting out there because of social media. I mean, it used to be that only media had the pipes or the distribution channels to get out in front of people. Nowadays, you can put out a tweet and it can really get traction. So I do think there are different ways for people to get out their, their stories. But I worry greatly for the court system, um, for the things that we think of as boring, that don't excite um, that don't excite advertisers to support them, I do worry about. And I do think that inevitably uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the bigger, more serious uh, journalistic institutions will continue to have to charge more and more for what they offer because uh, as advertising certainly takes a big crash in the current moment, the, co the corona uh, crash, um, they're going to survive. They're going to have to survive on charging consumers, and consumers are going to have to get used to paying for quality information. And that will be the big divide that I was talking about earlier: those who can afford to pay for quality information and those who can't. I'd love to hear, and you can pick any part of your career—the beginning, going back to the Spectator, or right up to the present day—and what you're doing which all sounds so tremendously exciting, you know, creating new content and new pathways forward uh, for us all to enjoy. Who were some of the great minds, Joanna, who really influenced you? That is a great question. I mean, I was very influenced by Kathy Black and Ellen Levine at Hearst, who were two extraordinary women who really were ahead of their time. Ellen was the editorial director. Kathy Black ran the magazine division. And they were both extraordinarily generous in their mentorship of me. I was very influenced by Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In and, and what Sheryl um, produced there. But I think the people that have most influenced me in a way are the younger women that you hire who come to you with ideas and when you say no to them are determined to get their ideas through anyway. And actually, I remember a very smart young woman called Jahan Thompson, who, when I was at Marie Claire, uh, was determined to write a piece about the misuse of resources going into breast cancer and breast cancer cure and breast cancer prevention. And I, I couldn't really believe it. When she first came to me, she presented it as an idea. And I, I didn't believe the statistics she was giving me. And I said, go off and check them. I just, this doesn't seem right to me. And she came back and she had more information. And I still sent her away because I was a little bit nervous of the story, frankly, because as a woman's magazine, you don't want to wade into an area criticizing anything to do with breast cancer because it's such a big medical issue and so many women still suffer from it. But she was very persuasive. She did a lot of work on it. And we ended up writing a very 
what turned out to be the first of a very uh, impactful series of stories that other media then ran about really the breast cancer industry. And we got nominated for our first National Magazine Award. And I always remember her determination and her ability to find every fact she needed to further her argument. And I was so grateful for working with a lot of young women like that who are incredibly organized. And it might have been, you know, from the celebrity booker who found you the person you didn't think you wanted for your cover that month, but turned out to be exactly the right person, to the young woman pushing the breast the breast cancer industry story, to other women wanting to write about areas of life like domestic violence or intimate terrorism, uh, as it's now referred to, which didn't seem glamorous subjects, but they felt passionate about it and, and wrote brilliant pieces um, that really you know, were unbelievably helpful to to readers. And it's hard to remember that, you know, even five, 10 years ago, women's magazines uh, were unbelievably influential in, in women's lives and took them seriously in a way that a lot of national media has patronized women. And now more of those stories are happening online because they're not all being curated through the lens of white male owners and white male editors. But I was always very grateful. So I think the people that most influenced me were the team that I hired of young women who expected me to do the right thing and held me to account when I, when I sometimes didn't want to. Fantastic. That was just wonderful. Well, Joanna, you know, you have been uh, so gracious with your time today. I can't thank you enough. And, you know, just to sum up, I, I think one of the big words in our industry today is influencer. And we talk about the influencers, whether they're on one of the digital channels or uh, whatever forum they come to us through. But I think you have been the consummate influencer in your career and were an influencer before we knew what influencers were the way we define them today and your ability to have the finger on the pulse and not only know where we are today, but more importantly, where we're going tomorrow and helping to make world a little bit better along the way. Um, I think we're all much better off with you around. And I know your best knowing you as I do, I am certain that the best is still yet to come. Well, good Lord, Matt, we need to hang out much more frequently if this is what you think. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been fun to talk about it. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.